It is Tuesday morning. We are so glad you're with us on CNN this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, my friends. We have a lot of news to get it to. It is a busy Tuesday. Around the world. So let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, July 25th. It is meeting day for the federal grand jury and the investigation and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And CNN has learned exclusively that prosecutors are looking into an Oval Office meeting where former President Trump repeatedly praised how secure elections were. Yes, before going on to bash them and question them. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy going further than he's gone before, saying the House investigations into the Biden family business dealings rise to the, quote, level of impeachment inquiry. Texas refusing to remove its border buoys as the Justice Department sues the state. The state's Republican governor says he plans to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court. Israel's doctors on strike this morning after a violent night of protests over a new law limiting the power of the nation's Supreme Court and... The Israeli Umbrella Labor Union warning of, quote, serious consequences if the government legislates unilaterally. The Alabama woman who went missing for 49 hours after making a 911 call now says she was not kidnapped. And in fact, it was all a hoax. Investigators mulling charges against her. Seen on This Morning starts right now. we begin this morning just hours from now the federal grand jury investigating donald trump's efforts to overturn the election will meet again as another potential indictment looms over the former president we are also learning exclusive details about this oval office meeting that special counsel jack smith is apparently zeroing in on sources tell cnn his investigators have been asking multiple witnesses about a meeting in the oval office it happened in february of 2020 where trump apparently praised improvements to election security and thought they were so good, perhaps they should do a press conference about them with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to take credit. But just weeks later, Trump began spreading baseless voter fraud conspiracy theories. Now, mail ballots, they cheat, okay? People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country. This election will be the most rigged election in history. The only way we're going to lose this election as if the election is rigged. Remember that. This is being done on purpose. They know it's no good. They know it's, it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. Who's getting the ballots? Who's sending the ballots? Let's bring in now CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance with more. So, Caitlin, this is perhaps the latest indication that the special counsel is looking to learn more about, seeking testimony about what Donald Trump knew or was told about election security leading up to some of these voter fraud claims. Right. So this is a new report that reflects some of the sweep of this investigation. This investigation by special counsel Jack Smith has been going on for months and months and has really looked at every angle about what happened, not just after the election, but what happened before the election as well. And so this reporting from Sean Lingus, uh, Kylie Atwood, Zach Cohen and Evan Perez here at CNN is that they have pieced together that one of the avenues that the special counsel had been asking people about was what happened when senior national security officials went to the White House to tell Donald Trump how secure the election was going to be. That was at the beginning of 2020. And Donald Trump was so encouraged by this that he was telling them uh, that he wanted them to have some sort of press conference to take credit for the work that they had done and had some sort of level of confidence in this. Obviously, Trump's tune changed the closer it got to the election. And then obviously afterwards, he was uh, quite keen on saying publicly that he didn't 
believe that the election had been secure. But this is just another piece of something that the special counsel's office has heard about in this time period, looking at two different things, how Donald Trump was reacting to the election as it was upcoming, uh, and also how well-informed he was, what he was being told by senior intelligence officials. And while the special counsel has heard about this from some people, we also have heard through our reporting that there were some people that would have been around the White House at that time in February 2020 who hadn't been asked about this and has talk, and have talked to the special counsel. So totally unclear where it fits in this, but we are at a moment at the end where we might learn very soon how it would factor into a potential case against Donald Trump as that grand jury meets again today. I thought that was a really interesting part of this reporting, that some folks in the meeting have been asked about it, but some who you would expect to be in the meeting weren't. So how big a deal is this for for Jack Smith. Before you go, uh, the special counsel, Jack Smith, has also gotten a lot of documents, a trove of documents from Rudy Giuliani's team, uh, all of these efforts, affidavits, et cetera, trying to find election fraud. What's the significance of that being in Jack Smith's hands now? Yeah. Well, Poppy and Erica, you would think that by now the special counsel's office has gotten everything that they wanted right. or that things had been turned over to House investigators in lawsuits. But actually, Bernie Carrick, who was a really key person working with Rudy Giuliani after the election, an old friend of Giuliani's in New York, who was a top investigator and coordinator of this effort to try and undermine what the vote was uh, to not elect Donald Trump, he was one of the people that was funneling information to, to Rudy Giuliani. And when the House asked for documents from him, when lawsuits asked for documents from Bernie Carrick, he was declining to turn them over, saying that they were part of the uh, umbrella of things that should not be handed over because Giuliani was a lawyer and he was working on that team. So a privilege claim that he was making. But now he has recanted that and he's saying, actually, the Trump campaign that held the privilege here, they're willing to allow me to turn these documents over. And so He's turned many over to the special counsel's investigation. They're still getting information, even at this late stage. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you for the update on both, Kaylin. Let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. So, Ellie, as we look at this, as Caitlin pointed out, they're really looking at both the reaction, Donald Trump's reaction to the election, to that information, but also what stood out to me here is how well informed yeah. the former president was. That's important. Yeah, the entire battleground in this case, if there is a case brought, will be about intent, will be about what was in Donald Trump's mind. It's the hardest thing for prosecutors to prove, especially in this case, is the most important thing for them to prove. And if, as a prosecutor, you're trying to make an argument to the jury, he knew. He understood that these elections were safe and secure. He knew there was no fraud. This meeting is chapter one in that story. You say, here it is, and it's important to know the timing. It's almost a full year before January 6th. It's February 2020. And you say, here's Donald Trump sitting down with his own top election security officials. They're telling him that this election is secure. And not only does he agree with that, he wants to celebrate it. Now, that doesn't necessarily end the issue because the defense can say, sure, that's what he was told. But later, yeah. <laughs> he got more facts yes. and his, his view evolved. Um, but this is a pretty good starting point. I was just going to say, you need mens rea. You need state of mind for a crime. But your mind can change. Yeah. And if you're Trump's defense counsel, isn't that your exact argument? So let me put on my other hat here and be defense Trump's counsel. defense lawyer. Yeah, I would say, folks in the jury, this shows you that Donald Trump was very hands-on and very concerned about election security, right? Now, as time went by, he had advisors telling him there is fraud. You all may say that those advisors were kooky. Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, they're, they, they're not lawyers right now. They're suspended right now. But they were lawyers at the time. They were former federal prosecutors. And should Donald Trump have listened to them, we can debate that. But would it be a crime for Donald Trump to listen to them? 
I'm arguing his Donald Trump yeah. No, it would not be. So this is a little bit of the back and forth that we're going to see if there's a trial any day on mm. and if we see an indictment. If there's a trial, depending what the charges are, too. Right? We have to trial, keep, right. I, think, I think it's important to keep saying. There's also um, the Washington Post reporting uh, about this text exchange, which was actually in the January 6th yeah. report, but this text exchange between Mark Meadows and uh, Trump lawyer Eric Hirschman, early December 2020, they're um, LOLing laughing out loud for the, the kids in the room who don't know what the old people are talking about, about the idea that there was massive voter fraud in Georgia. What does that potentially signify? So again, it goes to intent. But as to Mark Meadows, let's remember, Mark Meadows has some issues here. We don't know exactly what his status is. We do have reporting that he's spoken with Jack Smith's team. But this can be incriminating towards Mark Meadows because he's laughing. He's joking about the fact that his son has only found a handful of isolated incidents of voter fraud. And the, and the joke is sort of, well, why doesn't he just, you know, find all the thousands that you and your boss keep this joking about? This was right about. before he was on that famous Trump exactly. call mm -hmm. with, with Raffensperger in Georgia. Exactly. Let's remember that. So that calls January 2nd, 2021, a few days before yeah. January 6th, actually. Mark Meadows is on that call. Mark Meadows is the one who introduces the parties on that call. Of course, the infamous call where Donald Trump ends up asking Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. So you, you say, you argue, if you're trying to argue that Mark Meadows was part, part of a fraud, he knows behind closed doors he's joking about how there's no fraud. Yet here he is helping the president browbeat people to find fraud. When the target letter came last week to Trump, many people thought hours, if not days, before we know if there's an indictment yeah. here. And it's been a week. Yeah, so the, I think he got the target letter on Sunday. So now we're nine days yeah. later. There's no set rule of you must indict within X number of days of the target letter. All we really know is the grand jury, I believe, is back in session today. And now we wait. The fact, by the way, that there are other witnesses scheduled, Bernie Carrick scheduled for two weeks from now, does not mean DOJ has to wait on them. You can indict whenever you want. You can keep investigating as long as that ongoing investigation relates to some other person, some other angle, some other crime. So we're all on watch. Yeah, we are. You're on standby. You are not allowed to leave this building. I have, I have an electronic you know. bracelet on my, on my ankle that <laughs> won't let Ellie. me go far. Ellie, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> so new overnight, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made his most direct threat yet of an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. McCarthy still has not explicitly said that he would formalize an inquiry against a president or offer a timeline. Lauren Fox following all of this on Capitol Hill. Follow the money is what he is saying. Yeah, and these are really the strongest comments we have heard from him yet, Poppy, into whether or not the House of Representatives would launch an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Here's what he said last night to Sean Hannity. We would know none of this if Republicans had not taken the majority. We've only followed where the information has taken us. But Hannity, so this is Speaker. rising to the level of impeachment inquiry. We will follow this all the way to the end, and this is going to rise to an impeachment inquiry the way the Constitution tells us to do this, and we have to get the answers to these questions. And there are multiple House committees that have been investigating Hunter Biden's business dealings for months now. They have yet to show a direct link between President Joe Biden and his son. However, their argument from House Republicans is that these investigations have to continue. We should also note this isn't happening in a vacuum, Poppy. House Republicans have been talking about impeachment inquiries into Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, as well as Attorney General Merrick Garland. So there's a whole 
whole host of Biden officials that they are looking into. We should also note that this comes just weeks after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had a phone call with former President Donald Trump in which he made it clear that he supported the idea of erasing or expunging the record of Donald Trump's impeachments in the House to the former president. He said he was going to have a conversation with House Republicans. When we talked to House Republicans last week about expunging Donald Trump's impeachment records, the conference was really split between moderates who argued, you know, what is the practical implication there, and more hardline members like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said that this is an idea they have long been pushing. Poppy? Well, we'll hear a little bit more about all of it from David Weiss when he appears publicly to testify that U.S. attorney that agreed to the Hunter Biden plea deal um, in the fall. So that'll add another element to this. Lauren, thanks very much. This morning, Texas is refusing to remove its border barriers in the Rio Grande, even as the federal government sues. Governor Greg Abbott vowing to take this fight all the way to the Supreme Court. We will litigate initially in a federal district court in the state of Texas. Uh, if we lose there, we will be going to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and eventually all the way to the United States Supreme Court because Texas is defending its sovereignty and its constitutional right to secure the border of our state and our country. The administration is asking a federal judge to force Texas to get rid of the floating barrier there meant to deter migrants. The barrier itself is about 1,000 feet long. It's anchored to the bottom of the waterway. So the Justice Department here says it's not only dangerous, but it is illegal. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in Eagle Pass, Texas, near the border this morning. Uh, The DOJ, of course, filing this, too, uh, not necessarily about immigration, but about environmental concerns. Rosa, what are you seeing this morning on the ground? Erica, good morning. What we're seeing is defiance on the border. Let me show you the border barrier that's at the center of this legal battle. If you take a look here, beyond two sets of concertina wire, you'll see the buoys in the middle of the river. According to the U.S. DOJ's lawsuit against the state of Texas, these buoys were deployed unlawfully. They were deployed without permits by the Army Corps of Engineers. According to this lawsuit, uh, these pose diplomatic risks with Mexico and also raise concerns uh, both of public safety and humanitarian concerns. Now, according to Governor Greg Abbott, the state of Texas has sovereign authority based on the constitutions of Texas and the United States. Now, the office of the Texas Attorney General issuing a statement to CNN saying that they're ready to duke it out in court. They're ready to fight for Texas's use of these border buoys along the Rio Grande. Now, back to the humanitarian concerns. Take a look at this video. We were here yesterday when a pregnant woman from Honduras was getting medical attention um, uh, here on the property where we are live. And the property owner actually painted a clear picture of what was happening. She explained to us that this woman was on the river and that law enforcement had to cut the concertina wire to render her aid. They also had to cut the fence to actually bring her on her property to render aid. Now, this property owner is very concerned about these border barriers, saying that they pose additional risks to migrants. Take a listen. I cannot imagine anyone eight months pregnant having to go through this, getting cut through the sea wire, feeling like you're being chased by the state and then asking for help at a fence. 
Now, Erica, it's not just the U.S. DOJ that's asking the state of Texas to remove the floating border barrier. That property owner is also asking the state of Texas to remove the concertina wire. She says it just adds a danger that is not needed, especially in this triple-digit heat. Erica. Wow. Rosa, appreciate it. Thank you. An explosive discovery at a Russian-occupied nuclear power plant in Ukraine. A team of United Nations nuclear experts say they found mines. And what comes next in Israel after lawmakers defied mass protests, passing a law to strip power from the Supreme Court? We're on the ground covering both of these developing stories. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. We have new developments out of Ukraine this morning. Experts from the, U the UN's nuclear watchdog agency have confirmed the discovery of mines at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. That's very concerning, obviously. Ukraine's president has repeatedly called on world leaders to put pressure on Russia to hand over control of the plant to the agency. Our Alex Markar joins us again this morning. He's live in Odessa. That's in southern Ukraine. Alex, this is incredibly concerning. This is Europe's largest nuclear plant. Well, it is, Poppy, because you never want to hear the word mines alongside nuclear power plant. What we understand from the IAEA and from its head, Rafael Grossi, is that IAEA experts who were there over the weekend spotted what they called directional anti-personnel mines uh, scattered around the periphery and in, in, along the, the outside in a buffer zone. Now, these would be uh, smaller mines that explode in a certain direction. They're designed to maim or to, to kill humans, so they are likely not uh, a threat to the plant itself, but it really does speak to how entrenched the military is. The Russian military is there. Uh, they have occupied it for quite some time. Uh, now, it goes without saying, but we are hearing from the IAEA that this is what they say uh, against the safety standards uh, and nuclear security guidance. Uh, we have heard from President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials in the past who have accused Russian forces of mining the plant in a more uh, robust way, uh, including mines along the roof that they say could lead to a terrorist act by Russia. But, Poppy, that is something that Russia has long denied. Ukraine has been reporting territorial gains, some success in this counteroffensive. You're in southern Ukraine, You've obviously standing in front of destruction. Talk to us about what's behind you and also your assessment of what we're seeing on the ground in this counteroffensive. Well, I think some success uh, really is what needs to be emphasized here. Uh, Ukrainian armed forces claiming uh, that they are pushing forward on two specific fronts as they try to go south. Uh, towards cities called Berdyansk and Melitopol. These are occupied by Russian forces, uh, but they are essentially prodding along this front line, trying to break through this very tough uh, Russian line. Uh, the Institute for the Study of War, which is a group that monitors this, says that uh, Ukrainian forces have managed to move forward about 1.7 kilometers or, or just over a mile. Uh, but the, this is the main goal. One of the main goals in this counteroffensive is to drive south, split that Russian line, and cut through what has become known as this land bridge, which connects uh, Russian-occupied Crimea with, with the Donbass. Uh, Poppy, when I spoke with the Ukrainian defense minister a couple days ago, he said that this is the main priority, to try to reach the Sea of Azov and split those Russian defenses. Now, Poppy, here in the city of Odessa, obviously this is a city that has come under withering Russian attack over the past week. Uh, they did not attack the city overnight. We did briefly hear some air raid sirens, but there was no significant attack. I'm standing here in front of uh, a building that has been, has been pretty badly destroyed. This is one of those uh, historical uh, buildings, some of the 25 uh, that were 
damaged in recent strikes alongside that cathedral that I, I spoke to you from uh, just yesterday. Workers have been working here throughout the course of the morning uh, to clear it. We have seen over the, over the past week Russia uh, not attacking the, the city on, on certain nights, but then, Poppy, they will come back with a vengeance. So certainly no one here uh, is expecting these attacks to be over. This is a city that is still very much on edge. Poppy. Alex, thank you for your reporting live from Odessa for us. Appreciate it, Erica. This morning, Israel's health system is going on strike. This is in response to Israeli lawmakers passing the first judicial overhaul law, stripping the Supreme Court of power to block government decisions. Now, officials say that emergency rooms will operate as usual. The strike won't affect Jerusalem and the ongoing protests. Thousands of demonstrators took to the streets after the vote, blocking highways, clashing with police who say at least 19 people have been arrested. CNN Sadas Gold is live in Jerusalem this morning with more. Uh, and what else are we anticipating? What else are you already seeing, Hadas, in terms of fallout from this bill's passing? Yeah, the protests continuing overnight, some dramatic scenes, especially with police using water cannons as well as what's called skunk spray. It's very foul smelling water spray against the protesters in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv protesters blocking roads, blocking highways. We know dozens have been injured as well as at least a dozen police officers. In one case, actually, a car rammed into some protesters along a highway. That car, the driver has been arrested. Now, as you noted, the Israeli Medical Association is on a 24 hour strike. Emergency rooms are still working. We know that petitions have already been filed in the Supreme Court seeking an temporary injunction on this legislation. That has not yet been granted as far as we know, but we know of at least two petitions that have been filed. And there are still those thousands of military reservists who have said that they will not heed the call to serve since this legislation has passed. We're also getting more diplomatic fallout, international relation fallout. The British Foreign Office issuing a statement saying that they're urging consensus and hope Israel will preserve checks and balance. Now, last night, Benjamin Netanyahu took to the airwaves in a televised statement, and he was essentially digging in. He called the legislation that, as you noted, strips the Supreme Court's ability from stopping government actions, declaring them unreasonable. He says that it's a necessary democratic step. He blamed the opposition for not compromising and saying that he's still open to negotiations on the further bills that they plan to pass about this judicial overhaul. But he says that they will keep going because keep in mind, the legislation that passed yesterday, it's just the first step. It's just one step of this massive judicial overhaul package that Benjamin Netanyahu's government wants to push forward that will completely reshape the Israeli judiciary, everything from how Supreme Court justices are appointed to the legal advisors within the government and further and further actions. Now, in addition to the foul, just to give you a sense of the mood here on the ground, I want to show you some of the major newspapers in Israel. They have accepted these blackout ads, and what they're saying at the bottom is a black day for democracy, a dark day for democracy. This is essentially all of the major Israeli newspapers have accepted this ad. Now, this ad was by a protest movement. This isn't an editorial decision, but just the fact that these newspapers accepted this advertisement on their front pages the day after what may be one of the most consequential days in Israeli domestic political history, that gives to a sense of the mood on the ground here. There's a lot of concern about what this means going forward, what this means for civil society going forward. But as of right now, the government's saying this, they're defending this move and saying this is a good thing and it's just the beginning, guys. It is fascinating. And the, the acceptance of those ads, as you point out, Hadass, super interesting as well. Really appreciate the reporting as always. Thank you. We'll have much more on Israel ahead in the program. Meantime, here in the United States, more than 340,000 UPS workers could go on strike soon. 
Negotiations continue today to try to prevent what could significantly adversely impact the U.S. economy. And a plane's nose shredded during a hailstorm on a New York-bound flight. Imagine what it was like on board. You'll hear about it. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, I looked around at the plane and saw that the nose of the plane had been pretty much ripped apart. And, you know, it, it's terrifying now that I'm thinking back and, and how close to actual death we came on that flight. Oh, terrifying to hear. This morning we are learning about Absolutely terrifying experience on a Delta flight. It sustained damage, severe damage from an intense hailstorm. Take a look at this. This is a hole in the nose of the plane. This was taken after the plane bound for New York from Milan, Italy, was diverted, forced to land in Rome. The passenger who took that photo explains what it felt like on board. The turbulence became violent, like a roller coaster. You could feel us changing elevations very quickly. And one thing that we heard, and you know, I'm a rather experienced flyer and I've never heard it before, was hail hitting the airplane, a very large, very loud banging sounds on the top of the plane and the wing. There was hand holding, there were screams. Thankfully, no one was hurt on board. That passenger praised the captain and the Delta crew for safely landing the aircraft, added though that he had no idea how bad the damage was until he got off. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, I looked around at the plane and saw that the nose of the plane had been pretty much ripped apart. We didn't know that the nose had been punched in, that the navigation system was likely knocked out, that the damage to the wings had occurred that one engine had a hole in it and had burned out and that the other engine had also sustained damage. In a statement, Delta did not describe the damage, but did say the flight was diverted to Rome after experiencing a weather-related maintenance issue shortly after departure and added the flight landed safely and that evaluation of the aircraft was being conducted. Glad they're okay. Absolutely. Uh, well, we are now just a week away from a potential UPS strike, one which analysts say could cripple the nation's supply chain. The union representing hundreds of thousands of workers is heading back to the negotiating table today, for the first time since those talks broke down over the July 4th weekend. But they say if they don't reach a deal on a new contract within the next week, they are ready to walk off the job. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz has been following this closely for us. So how close are they at this point? Where do the negotiations stand? Close, but not close. Both sides say they're 95 percent there, but it's that remaining piece of the puzzle that sent both sides walking away from the table over that July 4th weekend. Now, the union says that UPS makes historic profits, but UPS says that they have provided a historic deal for the union. Today will set the stage for what's to come. The largest single company strike in U.S. history could be just a week away. UPS and the Teamsters back at the negotiating table today. The two sides haven't met since they walked away following a marathon session over the July 4th weekend. UPS knows they need to pay our members. Since then, the Teamsters, who represent 340,000 UPS workers, have taken to the streets for rallies and practice pickets. President Sean O'Brien leading the charge. This week is going to be our defining moment 
in the Teamsters Union. It's going to be the defining moment for labor. We've organized, we've strategized, now it's time to pulverize. Both UPS and the union say 95% of the contract is done, but the 5% left unfinished is the biggest piece of the pie, pay. The stuff doesn't go anywhere unless we move it. We're the ones that are making all of that money and stuff, and we don't see it, any of it. Part-time workers make up the majority of UPS employees who exclusively handle and load packages. Part-time pay starts at $16.20 an hour, but after 30 days, the average wage rises to $20. UPS says they get the same benefits as full-time workers, but the latter make $42 an hour on average. So we've got, to, we've got to drive up the starting rate for part-timers, but we also have to reward the long-term part-timers that have been there. UPS moves a quarter of all packages in the U.S., amounting to 7% of U.S. GDP. FedEx and USPS don't have the capacity to fill the vacuum. A 10-day UPS strike could cost the U.S. economy more than $7 billion, with $4 billion directly impacting consumers and small businesses. There will be shipping delays. More than likely, we're going to see higher volumes or higher costs with other shippers that are picking up some of the slack. UPS said their offer was historic. The Teamsters said it wasn't good enough. In a statement, UPS said in part, we started these negotiations prepared to increase the already industry-leading pay and benefits we provide our full and part-time union employees and are committed to reaching an agreement that will do just that. So far, the two sides have agreed to air conditioning in new vehicles, retrofitting old ones with fans, recognizing Martin Luther King Day, and paying weekend employees the same as weekday workers. I'm pleased with everything we've negotiated because there is not one concession. We've got tremendous leverage, and we're not giving one thing back. Now, both sides say they believe that they can come to a deal eventually without in outside intervention. We know that the Teamsters president has asked the Biden administration specifically not to intervene in, ne in negotiations. The last time we saw a strike was in 1997. And think about this. They lost market share during that time and they recouped about 90 percent. But now analysts are saying that if there was a strike, UPS potentially would only be able to recruit 70 percent. And that's a problem, obviously, for the company, but also for jobs. Less business, yeah. fewer jobs. So a lose-lose in the end. So what you just said about them asking the Biden administration mm -hmm. not to get involved, we all remember the near rail strike yeah. a few mm -hmm. months ago. The Biden administration had the power to step in there and, yeah. and prevent, and Congress had power. Do they have that kind of power here? They do not unless they invoke this sort of old time act that exists. Okay. But they did have the power in the rail strike. Um, they do have someone uh, that is involved right now in the UAW negotiations with the big three auto manufacturers. Mm -hmm. But both sides really clear they do not want anyone to get involved in this one way or another. If it's before a strike or after a strike, they do believe that they can reach some sort of deal. Just timing yeah, just is when. so, so key it here. Really is countdown clock is, is ticking. ticking. Vanessa, thanks. Thank you. Just in this morning, a new warning from doctors. There could be a troubling side effect from this very popular new weight loss drug. And some uh, really remarkable video here shows a baby in South Texas being rescued from a hot car. The parents accidentally locked their keys inside the vehicle, frantically then trying to get in. You see the father here smashing the front windshield, trying to get into that car. 
The temperature in the area was hovering around 101 degrees at the time. Well, a woman was able to climb through that broken glass, get inside the car, get the infant, hand the baby to dad. Police say the baby is doing fine. No charges filed here. So some doctors are calling for more research into the side effects of very popular diabetes and weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi. They say the new side effects may be emerging and as the demand for these medicines skyrockets. Our Meg Terrell, our medical correspondent, is here. What are the doctors worried about? Yeah, so we know that the way these drugs work is they mimic a hormone in the gut called GLP-1, and that stimulates the body to produce insulin, can also curb hunger, and it slows the stomach from emptying. And it's that last thing that doctors are focused on now. Uh, our reporter, Brenda Goodman, talked with three patients who had sort of a severe effect of that that actually caused, or their doctors think perhaps caused, stomach paralysis or gastroparesis, a severe form of that, and that can cause severe vomiting and nausea. And of course, GI effects are known side effects of these medicines. You can see in clinical trials, uh, nausea was felt by 20% of patients on Ozempic, 44% of patients on Wagovi, which is a higher dose of Ozempic, essentially for weight <clears throat> loss. Uh, but the stomach emptying effect is something that Novo mentions in the drugs label, but only really to warn patients it can affect, you know, if they're taking other drugs, the metabolism of those medicines as well. Not that it can cause this effect. The FDA has said it's received some reports of stomach paralysis among patients taking the medicines. They don't know if the medicines caused this. They did say in some cases uh, that hadn't stopped even after patients stopped taking the medicine. Oh, wow. And the American Society of Anesthesiologists warned last month that patients should stop taking taking these medicines if they're having elective surgery maybe a week before, because having a full stomach before surgery can be really dangerous if you're going under general anesthesia. And so this is something that is known, but doctors are saying, we really don't understand this effect well enough, and patients should really be aware of it. If they're having severe vomiting, for example, that's not a good thing. Right, so what are the companies then saying? They're, they were saying initially, to your point, look, these can be some of the side effects, but they weren't saying it could be this severe. Right, exactly. So Novo Nordisk, which is the maker of both Ozempic and Wagovi, says that these drugs and the class of medicines has been on the market, you know, for 15 years for diabetes, eight years for weight loss. They say they've been extensively studied both in clinical trials and since they've been on the market, they say there's something like 9.5 million patient years of experience with these medicines. And so they, while they note that this can happen, they don't say it's a severe side effect of the drug and it hasn't been proven to be causative. Stomach paralysis, though, is just scary when you hear it. Yeah. Think hard about this before you start it, I guess. Yeah, and be aware that it does slow yep. stomach emptying. That's a known effect. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Well, the Alabama woman who claimed she had been kidnapped after trying to help a branded toddler on the side of the road, now offering a much different story. Could she also be facing charges? And Senator Mitt Romney, a former presidential candidate himself, has just called on Republican donors to pressure some of Trump's rivals in the primary to drop out of the race. And our next hour, we'll be joined by Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie. What does he think of that? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Alabama woman who went missing for 49 hours after calling 911 about a toddler wandering alone on the highway now admits none of that ever happened. She was never kidnapped. Police say they received a letter from Carly Russell's lawyer saying she lied to 911 dispatchers. There was never a missing child and she herself was never missing. Well, now she could be facing charges for that hoax. CNN's Ryan Young is live in Atlanta this morning. Ryan, there was so much concern and so much confusion when this initial story came out. And now 
she made it all up, according to police? Well, that is the claim right now. You look at all that police did to try to find this woman. You understand why so many in the community across the country are wondering why this happened. That initial phase where Carly Russell was driving down that road and they saw the flashing lights using the surveillance camera. They were trying to figure out whether or not there was a toddler missing. You remember that news conference where the chief talked about the car moved 600 yards down that road. They were able to track that GPS to see exactly how far it went after that 911 call saying a toddler could never have crossed that much road while she was driving and calling 911. So much went into this. You think about the community, the other police departments, the federal law enforcement all went looking for Carly Russell. And then they put out the search uh, history where she Googled the movie Taken, and she also s tried to see what would happen during an Amber Alert. All this added up to this news conference yesterday. Take a listen to the chief. There was no kidnapping on Thursday, July 9th, 13th, 2023. My client did not see a baby on the side of the road. My client did not leave the Hoover area when she was identified as a missing person. My client did not have any help in this incident, but this was a single act done by herself. Yeah, to say this galvanized a lot of people and made them upset about this would be an understatement because you think about all the resources. Now charges could be coming her way. There was a question you asked yesterday during the news conference. How much did this all cost in terms of this search? That question wasn't answered just yet. It'd be up to district attorney to figure out whether or not to press charges. But when you think about her family and all the people in the community, who are actively trying to find out where this young woman was. We still don't have those answers. 49 hours of fear for all those people in the yeah. community, a toddler missing, a young woman missing. So many questions. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, appreciate the update this morning. Thank you. Absolutely. A relentless heat wave in Greece is fueling these out-of-control wildfires across that country. And there's a new study out this morning which reveals just how human-caused climate change is contributing to what is being called this heat hell. Plus, Poppy sat down exclusively with the head coach of the Washington Commanders football team. What he says is next for the Commanders after controversy, including maybe a name change. You gonna stay the Commanders? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Welcome back. The head coach of the Washington Commanders is not ruling out a potential name change again for the NFL team as new owners take the reins. A group led by billionaire Josh Harris bought the Commanders last week, and the sale, of course, comes after a controversial era for the franchise under previous owner Dan Snyder. Snyder faced sexual harassment accusations, a league investigation, and a congressional investigation. In December, the House Oversight Committee and Reform found that Snyder established a culture of fear within the NFL organization and attempted to intimidate witnesses from cooperating with investigators. Snyder has denied all the accusations. But Commander's head coach Ron Rivera is entering his fourth season with the franchise and in his first sit-down interview since the sale of the Commander's was complete, I spoke to him about all of these issues and what the future holds. You sit here as head coach of the Commander's and for the entire time you've been head coach, you have been coaching through through chaos around the organization, through congressional investigations into the Snyder ownership to allegations of sexual harassment. Now the team is sold. Is it a relief? Because you've been the one having to field all these questions. It is a relief. It's one of those things that you kind of feel like the burden has been taken off the shoulders, um, that now the focus can be on primarily football on um, what's important. 
you know, the interesting stuff now truly is a sign. But that stuff was, is important, yeah. especially these serious allegations. Yeah. But to, to football players, to us, what we do on the field, it's interesting. And that's how I was trying to keep it separate that way so that we keep the focus on playing the games. So what does this new ownership team mean for you? It has moved all this to this side. And now for us, with the new leadership coming in, it, it will be about just the football side of it, just that aspect of it. Um, I've had an opportunity to talk with Mr. Harris and uh, several of his uh, other partners. And it is, it is a different approach, a different look at things. You're going to stay the commanders? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, believe me, it, it is one of those things because, you know, it's hard for me because I grew up a Redskin fan back in the day. And a lot of it had to do with Charlie Taylor, who played for the team. Uh, his dad was a, a sergeant that worked with my dad. And so watching Charlie was, you know, was something that, that came naturally just because there was an association there. So the name maybe changed? Who knows? I mean, that's, that's, up to, that's up to what Mr. Harris wants, what the ownership group wants, and what they can get worked out. What does Coach want? I want the name that fits this team to be the best. I appreciate the time with him. We're going to have a lot more of our sit-down interview. We talked about a whole lot that's coming up soon. I'm looking forward to more of that. There's so much interest and has been in this team for so many different reasons. Yeah. But also really exciting to see them move into this yeah. new, I guess, this new chapter. Uh, totally new With chapter. these new owners, what that could mean for the team. Yeah. He's great. a remarkable leader, so we'll have more for you coming up. CNN This Morning continues right now. Another Oval Office meeting. This time, Donald Trump bragged about election security months before attacking election security. The special counsel was given thousands of pages of documents related to Giuliani. Winning the election is his legal defense. The campaign is the defense. I think it's a justifiable case, a righteous case, but it's not an easy case. Experts with the International Atomic Energy Agency say they've discovered mines at the site of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. These are directional anti-personnel mines, which are designed to maim, to hurt, to kill people. This one nuclear power plant is being drawn into the heart of the conflict. The DOJ is suing the state over the floating border wall that's made of buoys in the Rio Grande River. The Texas Attorney General says that it's ready for this legal fight in federal court. Texas is defending its sovereignty and its constitutional right. He's not moving forward in good faith. Political stunts in an inhumane way. Protests in Israel turning violent. Israeli lawmakers, by the slimmest of margins, voted to overhaul the justice system, a move critics say is pushing Israel towards dictatorship. One designed to restore a measure of balance between the authorities. They believe it's so important for them to stay out here right now and voice their anger. That's not good for Israel. It's not good for the United States. And frankly, it's not good for the Middle East. A new world weather report says the recent extreme heat would have been, quote, virtually impossible without human-induced climate change. By the end of this week, 125 or more record highs will be broken. It's now almost certain that July will be the warmest month that this planet has seen in recorded history. Wow, we're going to get to the heat, the historic, deadly, dangerous mm -hmm. heat in a moment. We have a lot to get to. We're glad you're with us on this Tuesday morning. A lot of focus on Washington, D.C. this morning. That's because the federal grand jury investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election is set to meet just hours from now. And anticipation is building as the former president faces another potential indictment. We're also learning some exclusive details about another Oval Office meeting. 
that has become a focus for special counsel Jack Smith in this investigation. Sources telling CNN witnesses are being asked about that meeting. It happened in February of 2020, where the former president praised election security improvements, even going so far as to suggest doing a news conference so that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security could take credit and tout just how secure things would be. Right, so what changed just weeks after celebrating election security behind closed doors in the Oval Office, Trump started spreading baseless claims about voter fraud. Mail ballots, they cheat, okay? People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country. This election will be the most rigged election in history. The only way we're gonna lose this election is if the election is rigged, remember that. This is being done on purpose. They know it's no good, they know it's it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. Who's getting the ballots? Who's sending the ballots? Let's bring in CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Pollens. Caitlin, good morning to you. This is the latest indication the special counsel is seeking testimony about Trump's state of mind, what he knew when he said those things. How big a deal is that meeting? Well, right now, we don't know exactly how it would fit into what the grand jury is weighing. We do expect that federal grand jury that's been looking at January 6th in the case that special counsel Jack Smith is bringing together where Donald Trump is a target. We do expect them to meet today. We won't know if they actually are convening or what they're doing uh, until they do it uh, because grand jury proceedings are extremely confidential until there is an indictment that would emerge. But in this story uh, that last night was broken by Sean Lingus and others here at CNN, uh, it essentially is capturing just an aspect of what happened even before the election, even just a month or two before Donald Trump was out there saying that people may be cheating in the 2020 election. He was being told by senior intelligence, national security officials, officials, that the election was going to be very secure, that they were very confident in that. The confidence kept up among the intel community, among Homeland Security. Through the election, it was ultimately a very secure election with no widespread fraud. But Donald Trump was briefed on this in February of 2020. It is something the special counsel understands that this briefing happened, that Donald Trump was receptive to this information, uh, that he was encouraging of the officials. Uh, But then there are other questions that the special counsel has asked, not just about what happened at this meeting, but also there is a piece of this investigation about how Trump retaliated, uh, apparently, against some of the officials that were telling him that the election was secure. There were people that were fired in the administration, people who resigned in protest near the end. And so all of that and how it fits into what the grand jury is looking at, we don't exactly know yet, but it is another aspect that the special counsel's office has pulled in Mm -hmm. as they build a case. More crumbs to follow here. Uh, The special counsel also, uh, we've learned, obtained key documents from Rudy Giuliani's team. Just got them a couple of days ago uh, from that team that was trying to find election fraud. What's in those documents? A lot of documents, actually, Erica and Poppy. There's um, hundreds of pages, and some of them are reports that the team around Rudy Giuliani were circulating about officials at Dominion Voting Systems, the group that they were accusing of uh, switching votes uh, with no evidence of that. They also had communications, many communications, on the Giuliani squad. So Rudy Giuliani was working for the Trump campaign after the election 
election, trying to undermine the vote. And there were people working with him. One of them was Bernie Carrick, a close old friend of Giuliani's. Carrick is the person that was holding back these documents from everybody who had been seeking them, not just the special counsel's office, but also House investigators. No one had gotten access to them. And then Carrick now is saying that they can have access to them. We'll see how that factors in, if there's even more investigation to be done uh, now that the special counsel's office has indicated they're near the end of uh, their what they're looking at. All right, Caitlin, appreciate the reporting as always. Thank you. All right, let's begin. CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, Elliot Williams. For more. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is so interesting because your mind can change. Yes. And if you're Trump, I know you're, you're a federal <laughs> prosecutor, but if you're Trump's defense counsel, you're saying, okay, he thought that then, that was February, by September, October, November, he changed his mind. Right. So let's back up and talk about why intent matters in the first place. And in any criminal case, prosecutors are going to establish what was in the defendant's head at the time that he committed the thing that he's accused of doing. And here, it appears that Jack Smith of the special counsel's office is investigating the former president's uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's That requires using an act of deceit to impede a government process, right? So if he knew that he'd lost the election but still was pushing these claims, uh, they're more likely to get evidence against him. And you really have to prove his intent, and meetings like this can sort of get to that. Right, and to Poppy's point, though, couldn't this also, right, they could also point to maybe there was that intent there, but that's because, listen, my client yeah. had been given all of these facts, in quotes, right? He had been told that it was true, so it's not really his fault he believed it. Sure. This is a pretty easy claim to rebut, I think, from the part of the former president, which is, I'm the president of the United States. I get briefings all the time. It is my job to take in a lot of information from all sides. And between February, when this briefing came, and April, when I hit the campaign trail and started saying more actively that the election was stolen, my mind changed. And I received more information suggesting that there was fraud. That's his argument. And I think just as a matter of uh, you know, what a defense attorney would do, which is just poke holes in an argument, that would be not a bad way to do it. Trump says his target letter came to him from the special counsel nine days ago. Yeah. Uh, many people expected if he was going to be indicted, it was going to happen soon. It's been nine days. And the, and the grand jury is meeting again and seeing more witnesses today, more witnesses scheduled in a few weeks from now. Yeah. What does that mean? If I, you know, if I had a mustache, I'd be twirling it now. <laughs> the plot thickens. No, but um, also remember that Trump had until last Thursday to appear before the right. grand jury. So per, they, they weren't going to charge him with a crime in that intervening Monday to Thursday. It's only been three or four days since then. In prosecutor terms, this is really not a long amount of time. And, and he could, even if he's charged within weeks, that's still imminent, uh, at least to prosecutors. Okay. Um, we'd love to get your take, too, on what's happening in Texas. Uh, so, oh, I sense the excitement here, which <laughs> yeah. is good. So, you know, the governor said, yeah. I'm not giving up. Go ahead, file your lawsuit. The DOJ did. Yep. Where does this all stand now? Governor Abbott said, I'm going to fight this all the way up to the Supreme Court if I have to. Interestingly, the, the lawsuit from the Department of Justice is not specifically about immigration. That's important. Yes, and like Freud would say, sometimes a lawsuit about immigration isn't a lawsuit about immigration. What the Justice Department was very careful to do was file this lawsuit on environmental grounds because of the fact that American law uh, gives the federal government sole discretion over waterways of the United States. There are treaties with Mexico governing how the Rio Grande is to be managed. When you put big buoys up in the middle of the Rio Grande, you're violating uh, national waters law. So it's, it allowed the Justice Department to stay out of the immigration scrum and say, no, we're not picking that fight. This is merely for violating the sovereignty of the United States. And that's why they're still Fascinating. Will it be successful? 
I think, I mean, I do think they have a pretty strong argument okay. there uh, if, you do, if, you, if you don't make it about the moral immigration stuff. There's the Absolutely. big if, yeah. Elliot. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. A truck driver who attacked a police officer during the January 6th Capitol riots has been sentenced to 52 months behind bars. 44-year-old Peter Steger of Arkansas was captured on video beating Officer Blake Miller with a flagpole after he was dragged by the mob and left lying face down. Steger is one of nine men charged with assaulting Miller and two other officers. Prosecutors said... He was caught on video pointing to the Capitol building and saying, quote, every single one of those Capitol law enforcement officers, death is the remedy. Uh, this morning, a new report says the extreme heat waves being felt around the world would be virtually impossible without human-induced climate change. Now, right now, wildfires are raging out of control across the globe. But you see some images here from Italy, Greece, Algeria, record-breaking temperatures also destroying crops and livestock and helping to trigger those wildfires and ultimately deaths, as we know. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam joining us now with more. So couldn't have happened, right, without everything that we have done as humans. I guess the question is, what can we do now, if anything, to reverse some of this damage? Well, let me put it this way, Erica. If we don't stop burning fossil fuels rapidly, our summer of heat hell that we're experiencing now will be considered a cool summer in the future. Now, scientists for decades have been able to attribute weather events like coastal flooding, heavy, heavy rain events, as well as these extreme heat events to climate change. But now the World Weather Attribution Initiative, the report we're talking about, has the ability to compare our current climate, which is 1.2 degrees Celsius above post-industrial averages to that of the past. And what it's finding is that the role of climate change is absolutely overwhelming. Take, for instance, the current heat wave this month of July across North America with man-made climate change is actually two degrees Celsius warmer than what it would be without these heat-trapping gases that we uh, release into the atmosphere. And they're becoming more frequent every five to 15 years. And if we continue to burn fossil fuels, we'll see that frequency become every two to three years for these extreme heat events. And what you and I used to consider as extreme heat, 95 degrees, is becoming easily more achievable. So not only is it becoming more frequent, but we're seeing these extremes become even more extreme yet. Take, for instance, the entire globe, the average temperature. We have set records since July 3rd. So we're on a 20-day or 20-something day streak of breaking this global average temperature record across the entire planet. And we're recording temperatures that we've never seen before. Take, for instance, China. Uh, as these heat domes continue to propagate across the northern hemisphere throughout our summer months, it is making these heat waves, like I said, and what this report states, virtually impossible without the effects of man-made climate change. Erica? Sobering indeed, Derek. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Senator Mitt Romney in a Wall Street Journal op-ed calling on long-shot Republican presidential candidates to drop out if the path forward doesn't look viable, all to help prevent Trump from winning the nomination. Chris Christie, one of the contenders in the race, will join us live. And we'll also speak with one of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's closest allies as the government there faces immense fallout over stripping power in the Supreme Court. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Well, Senator Mitt Romney is out with a clear message to Republican megadonors and influencers, quote, don't fund a Trump plurality. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed, Romney, who was, of course, the party's nominee in 2012, acknowledges the, quote, apparent inevitability of Donald Trump's nomination, but also suggests 
All hope is not lost for a potential alternative. That is, he says, if the Republican field narrows to a two-person race before Trump's nomination is locked in. And that's where donors come in. Their job, according to Romney, get candidates what he calls a slim chance of winning to, quote, agree to withdraw if and when their path to nominations are effectively closed and to do it by February 26th of next year. According to a recent Quinnipiac University poll of Republican and Republican-leaning voters, Trump is way ahead with 54 percent. DeSantis comes in at 25 percent, remaining candidates in the single digits. That includes New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who told New Hampshire voters last night he's not worried. I will never be in front in one poll in this race until election night. And then when election night happens and I win, all of a sudden you're going to become the smartest people in the world. <laughs> and the momentum that New Hampshire will give me will make me the Republican nominee. And I will guarantee you, if I am the Republican nominee, Joe Biden doesn't stand a chance to get reelected. Joining us now is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Governor, good morning. Welcome to CNN this morning. We're so happy to have you. Is Mitt Romney right? Yeah, look, I don't disagree with Mitt. I, I think especially um, given the date that he put on it, I, I think there will be a lot of narrowing even before Iowa. Uh, I think there will be narrowing that will be created by the debates and people's performances in the debates that start in less than a month. And then if you get through those first four contests and you haven't you know, made real progress um, and look like the person that's ready to take on whoever the front runner is at the time, whether it's Donald mm -hmm. Trump or somebody else, uh, well, then it makes sense for you to go home. Look, after I lost in New Hampshire mm -hmm. eight years ago, Poppy, I got out. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I wouldn't feel comfortable asking donors uh, for more money mm. um, or voters for their vote if I didn't see a realistic path you to victory. So I don't disagree with Mitt. You're betting a lot on New Hampshire, that's clear. Looking at the most recent New Hampshire polling, you're behind Trump, DeSantis, but you're also behind Senator Tim Scott. You're at 6%, he's at 8%, and he's got a really high favorability rating, and you're fighting a, a the highest unfavorability rating in the state. Why should people vote for you, Governor, and not just against Trump? Why you? Well, first off, Poppy, it's... it's uh, you know, every different poll that you look at, we're at 10 uh, percent in another poll in New Hampshire um, and ahead of Tim Scott and two other ones. So whichever one you use, you're going to see a bit of a different result. But look, the reason is because when we had the problems in this country that we had back in the late 70s, okay. it looks very much like today. Energy crisis, um, problems overseas that are not being dealt with appropriately, runaway inflation. And what the country did and our party and the Republican Party did was turn to a conservative governor from a blue state named Ronald Reagan, who understood how to get things done. Uh, you know, the Trump agenda is not worth anything to Republicans if Trump's the one trying to execute it because he's proven he didn't know how to get things done. He didn't know how to build the wall. He didn't repeal and replace Obamacare. He added $6 trillion to the national debt after he said he was going to balance the budget in four years. I balanced the budget in New Jersey every year for eight years. I got things done with the Democratic legislature. I think the American people are so down on politics because they look at Washington and see nothing getting done. Uh, I know how to do it because I did it with the Democratic one, legislature in New Jersey and preserve the values I believe in. One point uh, just on the economy, inflation has been cooling for 12 straight months, a dramatic cooling 
as you know, last month. So there has been some improvement there. Oh, what about Tim yeah, Scott's gaining of momentum, Governor? Are you worried about that? Are you going to start going after him? I don't, I don't worry about anybody, Poppy, except for the person who is in front. Um, and if you want to win this primary, you're going to have to prove to Republican primary voters why Donald Trump should not be renominated. And he shouldn't be renominated for a whole variety of reasons, but most importantly, because he can't beat Joe Biden. And he's already proven that. Um, look, I like Tim Scott. I think he's a good guy. We've known each other for a decade. Okay. Um, and, and we see eye to eye on a lot of different things. But the, but the point is, uh, that I'm someone who's had the experience of getting things done at the executive level in government in one of the Do hardest states to govern in this country. You clearly think Donald Trump is a danger to this country. Do you think he's more dangerous to this country with a second term than a Joe Biden second term? Look, I think they're both wrong for the country. And by the way, that 70 percent of the country agrees with me. Poppy. I know, but I'm asking um, they who don't want is a Trump more, versus Biden race. Who is worse? Poppy, that's like flipping a coin. You said um, that in I, your town hall. Bad for this you country. said that in your town hall. What do you think, Governor? You're so candid when you're talking about Trump. I did so. I, I, I am answering the question, Poppy. <laughs> I think they're both awful. Okay. And you're trying to give. You're trying to get me to pick between two awful alternatives. Here's something I'm completely committed to. I intend to beat both of them. I intend to beat Donald okay. Trump, and I intend to beat Joe Biden after I beat Donald Trump. And by the way, what people know about inflation, Poppy, is uh -huh. that prices are 17 percent higher now than they were when Joe Biden took the oath of yeah, office. I'm not arguing and inflation's not only a problem. Six percent. I'm not arguing it's not a problem. It's a huge problem. It Trust is. me, we ask the Biden administration about it every single time we have him on. I'm just saying we're seeing an improvement, and yep. Morgan Stanley just came out and credited Biden and their economic strategy for a big boost in economic growth ahead. Let me ask you about what you would do, though, as president. You were governor. You were executive of the state of New Jersey. You were also a federal prosecutor. And right now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is going head to head in court. He says he'll go to the Supreme Court with the Department of Justice, who says he is clearly breaking a federal statute with these buoys in the water and the barriers in the Rio Grande. You're a federal former prosecutor. Do you think Texas has the authority to do what they are doing? And would you do it if you were governor of that state? Um, I think they do have the authority to do it. I think this is another overreach by the Biden administration. They've been smacked down um, by federal courts and, and, and most particularly the Supreme Court on a number of overreaches of authority. And I think they do have the, the authority to do it in Texas. And if I were Greg Abbott, the governor of our, our largest border state, I'd be doing everything within reason that I could to be able to slow down where is, um, what's going on at the border. Where is that authority Go when ahead. Title III uh, of U.S. Code Section 403 reads, the creation of any obstruction not affirmatively authorized by Congress to, to the navigable capacity of the waters of the United States is prohibited? I mean, the text is very clear. And you have the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Well, and, well... And the text is very clear, Poppy, um, in Texas state law that they have the absolute right to protect their borders. And, the, and, the, and there's no question. They do, that but that's not what while breaking to do. And by federal, the way, federal laws. I mean, could you could you have built a dam in the Hudson? <laughs> there were days that I really wanted to, Poppy, but you didn't. I have to tell you the truth. Could um, you have really? Some of the stuff that was going on in New York. A, a, a dam in a dam in the Hudson River was not something that was going to be regarding the sanctity of New Jersey's borders. This is different. And by the way, the supremacy clause does apply, but not 
when the federal government has absolutely disappeared from doing what needs to be done to secure the border. You can't regulate something but then vacate the field and not do your job. If you're not doing the job, the states have the right to do it. And he has the right to do it not only under state law, but probably let me finish, not only under state law, but also because the argument, I guarantee you, will be made in federal court that the Biden administration has abandoned their role um, in securing the border, mm-hmm. and the states had no alternative. And the Biden and that's administration be a key will key factual argument. Sorry for stepping on you. There's a little delay. We'll move on, but the Biden administration will argue, as they did yesterday from the White House, look, uh, illegal border crossings at the southern border are down since we've implemented these changes, 42% in the last month. I want to move on to the issue of Israel and the protests, the biggest protests we've seen in the history of the country right now, given uh, the law that passed supported by Netanyahu, that the Supreme Court now can't be the ultimate check on the government there. Again, I wonder if you agree with Netanyahu, who calls that governor the essence of democracy. Is it? It's not the essence of American democracy, I'll tell you that, uh, Poppy. Um, Our founders set this up so that all of those branches would be in conflict with each other, being a check and a balance on the other. And I think that's why we're the most sustained democracy in the history of the world is because of all those branches, the legislative branch, the executive branch and the judicial branch being a check and a balance on each other. And I think that, you know, people are protesting in Israel because they want to make sure that no one has unchecked power Mm -hmm. in a democracy, in a republic like ours or like Israel's unchecked power is not good for anyone. And I think. Um, those are re- th- those are the biggest reasons yeah. why people are expressing this concern yeah. um, in Israel, and I think it's appropriate to express that concern. Sounds like you agree with the Biden administration on that. Let's move on to Trump. As a former prosecutor, you know all about intent and how that is a key factor in proving a crime. Did former President Trump know? I know you've seen our recent reporting overnight about that February 2020 Oval Office meeting. Did, did former President Trump know he lost the election? Did he say to you, ever acknowledged you that he lost? He never acknowledged to me after the fact that he lost, but he certainly expressed to me during the campaign um, and during preparations for the debates that he was very concerned about losing. I have no doubt in my mind, Poppy, um, that uh, in his heart, Donald Trump knows he lost to Joe Biden um, in November of 2020. Uh, But he has convinced himself by trying to convince others that the truth is otherwise, Mm. despite the fact that there is no evidence that the election was stolen in 2020. And I've been saying that Mm -hmm. since election night 2020. Um, I've been demanding to see the evidence and there is none. So um, he never looked me in the eye and said to me, I know I lost, Mm -hmm. but he was very concerned beforehand about losing. Uh, And and so it, it, it doesn't surprise me at all, the reporting that you gave overnight, but even more so, Um, This is a guy who put his own self-interest ahead of the country's interests. And to me, that's disqualifying for someone who who has served as president and who wants to be president again. Governor, what do you think your greatest weakness is as a leader? You know, I think for for me at least, um, it is at times uh, placing too much trust in others. At times it is, you know, relying on people and trusting them a little bit too much. Uh, And that's happened to me in the past. I think I've learned from that. Um, But I am a delegator of authority. Um, I like to empower people to that I put in charge of things to be able to make decisions that they should be able to make. And there have been uh, a couple of instances in my career 
where that's created some harm. But was, I think I've learned from it. Was trusting Trump your biggest mistake in that arena? No, because trusting Trump didn't affect the people that I governed as governor of New Jersey. Mm. But I will tell you this. Um, uh, I came to the conclusion the night he stood in the East Room of the White House behind the, the seal of the president and told the American people the election was stolen when he had no evidence to support that, that that was the moment that I could no longer mm -hmm. support him um, as president. And so my opinion hasn't changed since then. Governor Chris Christie, please come back. We enjoy having you on. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Poppy. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Erica. Great wide-ranging interview there. Well, in Israel this morning, lawmakers defying mass protests, passing that law to strip power from the Supreme Court. Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs joins us next. This morning, doctors across Israel walking off the job. This is all in response to lawmakers passing a controversial judicial reform bill, which strips the Supreme Court of its power to block government decisions. Israel's health system says the strike will not affect emergency rooms, nor the city of Jerusalem, due to the ongoing protests there. At least 19 people have been arrested after demonstrators took to the streets Monday, blocking highways, clashing with police. Joining us now is Ron Dermer, the Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs. It's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, you advised the prime minister back in March not to proceed here. I know your role in many ways was to drum up to support, to find the consensus here. Didn't seem to be there the national security advisor among those advising against it. Why do you believe the prime minister didn't listen to you here? Well, I don't think he didn't listen to me. Uh, we tried, the prime minister tried and authorized me to go into discussions with uh, uh, the Israeli president and members of the opposition to try to reach uh, consensus and compromise. Unfortunately, those talks did not bear fruit. And so what the prime minister decided to do, he can't give a veto power to the political opposition of any step forward in judicial reform. So what he decided to do was to choose the least controversial subject, which is what passed just the other day, this sort of reasonableness standard, which uh, the judges in Israel have used to strike down all sorts of decisions made by both the executive and the legislative branch. And that was a uh, this issue of the reasonableness clause was something that members of the opposition had supported reforming in the past. So he took the least controversial issue and he said we're going to move forward in a measured way with the least controversial aspect of this reform. And after that is passed, he called on the opposition to now sit down at the table to get serious about finding a compromise. That's so what he said yesterday. He's given four months now in order to find that compromise. And believe me, Erica, if we can't get to a compromise in four months, we won't be able to get to a compromise in four years. Uh, the prime minister would like to do that. He would like to forge so, that consensus and right. make these reforms together with the opposition, which is rare in democracies. Usually that does not happen. Well, where one the, thing, the, the people that were elected turned to the other side and said, let's do these reforms together. So we'll see what happens in that four months. But as you know, I mean, you talk directly about this clause. There is no constitution in Israel. This was the one form of check and balance, right? Was the Supreme Court being able to say, hey, this doesn't work to the legislative and executive branch. That is now gone. That is what a major part of the concern was, not just in the country, but outside of the country as well. We heard it from the president here. I'm curious, did President Biden directly ask the prime minister to stop down on this legislation? No. Uh, and let me also just clarify something. There are many checks that the Supreme Court has on the executive and legislative branches in government that maybe a lot of people are not aware of. 
There's all check and no balance. That's the problem that we've had in Israel over the last 30 years. You've had one of the most activist judiciaries in the world. In the world, we used to have three very strong branches of government, and today we have a very big judicial branch of government and two twigs: the executive and legislative branch. And the uh, the focus of this reform is to try to restore the balance between the branches of government. On what was passed yesterday, it's important for you and your listeners to understand. There are many checks that the Supreme Court has on executive decisions and legislative branch decisions in Israel. The reasonableness standard was one of the arrows in the quiver of the judiciary. Mm -hmm. The problem with that standard is entirely subjective. You're basically substituting the views of 15 in Israel unelected judges for the views of the 120 members of the Israeli parliament or the government. And it's an entirely subjective standard that doesn't exist to this extent in any Western democracy. The British so, have a very in, narrow standard where they only use arbitrary and capricious. So the speaking United of the States British, I will point out the foreign minister saying that you should, that urging the country this morning to preserve its system of checks and balances. You talk about what you see as these limited voices. Let's talk about the voices who are very vocal, not just last night into today, but for months who have been concerned about this potential legislation. And certainly after it passed, we see the protests. You have the Medical Association on a 24-hour strike. We have the thousands of reservists who say they will not report for duty. Nearly all former IDF chiefs of staff, as well as security officials, are concerned about this. Why rush this at this point, given all of these concerns, both domestically and internationally? Well, I don't, I don't agree that it was rushed. I mean, it took uh, a couple of months to pass this, the most minor part of the reform. We've been dealing with this thing for seven months. Uh, the prime minister just said we're going to give another four months for compromise. Look, Erica, Israel's a democracy. And as you know, in all democracies around the world, when you have issues that are controversial issues, you have protesters on the other side. You saw it in France, you see it in the United States, you mm -hmm. see it in democracies around the world. All it means is that Israel's democracy is very vibrant. I think if there are fears that the opposition and many of the protesters have. I personally think those fears are unfounded, and I think they're going to see, as we move forward with this reform, that many of the concerns that they have are not going to happen. All of the fears that they have of what this reform is going to do, it's going to somehow be the end of Israeli democracy. They're going to realize, no, it's going to strengthen Israeli democracy. So Israel has been a democracy, is a democracy, will continue to be a democracy. We just have a judicial system, again, I will say it, that is the most activist in the world. You have issues if, right now in a clearly defined system in the United States where you have an executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and you have tension between your branches of government, between the executive branch indeed and the we judicial do. Let me ask you, today. because we're almost out of time. I do want to ask Israel you, though. We just have to, we have to restore the balance. Specifically in Israel, if the Supreme Court does, in fact, strike down this legislation, will the government heed that ruling? Well, listen, Israel's run by the rule of law. Uh, I have no idea whether or not the Supreme Court would make such a decision. It would seem to me a very strange decision for the Supreme Court to make. To put it in American terms, imagine that. Would Congress you? But we, we're almost out of time, sir. So, so would the government heed that ruling? Yes or no? The government will always obey and abide by the rule of law in Israel because we're, uh, we, we have in Israel the rule of law. What we don't have is the rule of judges. We have the rule of law. Ron Germer, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. That was such a fascinating conversation. And that last question, I think, still remains. It does. Yeah. It does. We'll be watching. We'll see what happens, too, in these next four months. Um, but certainly not the last time that we'll be talking about this. Really good about interview. This. Really interesting.
Fed about to kick off its two-day meeting today. Will it raise interest rates again after hitting pause in June? Also, Congress about to hear firsthand testimony from witnesses who say they have seen UFOs. One of those witnesses joins us live next. This just into CNN. China's foreign minister, Tsing Gong, has been suddenly removed from his position, replaced by his predecessor. The surprise shakeup in Chinese leadership is especially significant because he's been missing now from the public eye for a month without information or explanation. CNN's Mark Stewart joining us now from Tokyo with these details. So the government had said at one point, oh, we don't have any information. We don't know what happened. But he had been very close to President Xi. What more do we know this morning? Indeed, Erica, one of President Xi Jinping's most trusted advisors. Uh, but as you mentioned, for the last month, there has been a lot of questions about his whereabouts. In fact, today, during a Ministry of Foreign Affairs briefing, a spokeswoman was asked about Qinggong's uh, whereabouts and how business is being conducted. And to quote, uh, no information to provide is the line that was given and that business was continuing as usual. Well, fast forward several hours and about just within the last hour, we learned that Xin Gong uh, has been removed from his post as foreign minister. This is a very high-profile job. This is the man who rebuked the United States and made strong comments uh, after the incident involving the spy balloon and the shootdown and the response. This is a man who has also served as ambassador to the United States, very visible, uh, yet uh, has suddenly been out of the public view. He is the person who helped facilitate uh, some of the recent conversations with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. But again, we have not seen him. In fact, when there were key visits by, by U.S. officials, such as Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, as well as John Kerry, he was out of public view. So as to what happened, uh, no clear narrative at this point, but this is a very bold change in the foreign policy force, if you will, for China, Erica. Yes, yeah, certainly is. Mark Stewart, appreciate it. Good to see you this morning. All right. Stock's doing well. The Dow hit its longest winning streak in more than six years after it closed higher again yesterday. The rally comes as the Federal Reserve kicks off a two-day meeting. Economists do expect the Federal raise rates once again after pausing in June. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here. What's going to happen? Good morning. Probably 25 basis points, a little bit of a rate hike here. You know, the Fed has really watched inflation cool, but it's still too high for for, you know, the Fed's 2% target is still at 3%. So we think they're going to do uh, another one here. And, and when you just look at the, the extent of all these rate hikes, it's just been amazing. And what's also been amazing is the resilience of the U.S. economy in the face of that. I mean, look at the stock market. The stock market, you mentioned, uh, longest winning streak for the Dow in more than six years. Look at the market performance this year, you guys. I mean, just take in those numbers. Yeah. Last year was a disaster for, for investors. This year, you're seeing a really strong bounce back. And one of the reasons is more and more people are looking at stronger than expected corporate earnings, cooling inflation, a still resilient job market and saying, maybe we can get that soft landing in the economy. In fact, Morgan Stanley uh, recently upgraded its GDP forecast for this year to 1.3 percent from 0.6 percent, which would suggest that um, we will avoid a recession. And Morgan Stanley specifically saying that Bidenomics and some of the Biden uh, industrial policy is really uh, helping here as well. So really, at the beginning of the year, people were saying when and not if mm -hmm. there will be a recession. And today they're saying, hmm, maybe we'll get we'll get past it. And that's certainly what the markets are saying. Wouldn't that be amazing? I, I mean, yeah, I mean, just remarkable. But 
No, but I'm always waiting for the next shoe to drop. I mean, right. this is, as, a, as a business <laughs> reporter, you know, always waiting for the next shoe to drop. But it has been a remarkable year yeah. in terms of the resilience of the of the U.S. economy and the consumer and the job market. What a tightrope to walk. I know, right? Thank, Thank you, Chris. All right, talk soon. A House subcommittee is set to hold a hearing on UFOs tomorrow. Our next guest, a Navy pilot who says he saw them on a near daily basis over a two-year period. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We may, just may, get one step closer this week to learning the truth about what the government really knows about UFOs. We call them UFOs. The government calls them unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAPs. Tomorrow, a House subcommittee will hear testimony from former U.S. military and intelligence personnel who say they've witnessed these UAPs. And they say they defy physics. They defy known flight capabilities. Our next guest is one of those who will testify before the committee. He's a former Navy fighter pilot who says he witnessed the UAPs, quote, every day for at least a couple of years. Joining us now is the founder of Americans for Safe Aerospace, Ryan Graves. It's really good to have you with us this morning. So we see that video and you're all kind of laughing. What is that? It became very serious for you, though. I know um, part of your training as a fighter pilot is to be able to identify objects in the sky. Do you have any idea of what that was? We don't. And to your point, being able to identify what's in the sky is a key part of being a fighter pilot. We're out there looking to identify who's operating off our coast. Uh, and when we can't, um, we can't ascertain what, what so, who the owner is of a particular object, uh, that's a pretty big national security concern for us. A big national security concern. It's also something that hasn't gotten as much attention um, you know, around the Chinese spy balloon. Uh, you were saying it's, it's not the same level of both public and official attention that we saw with that, for example, that we will see with these reports of UAPs or, or UFOs, as, as folks call them, at home. Why do you think there is not the same level of interest or concern even? Well, I think stigma has uh, played a large role in minimizing the topic. Um, when you hear UFO and even UAP to some extent, your, your mind goes to that, that cultural conversation about aliens and things of that nature. We don't have enough information to say where these objects are originating from. That's part of what we're trying to do, gather more information and take a hard look at the data in a serious, uh, serious way so we can determine if there are national security concerns that will pop out. Uh, as we saw, if there is a part of the sky that we're not paying that much attention to, our adversaries will take advantage of that. You know, you mentioned this reluctance in some cases to come forward, I, I would think both in the military, but also in the private sector, pilots, right? People need their jobs. This concern that if you come forward, it turns into, oh, you know, it's aliens and people will sort of make fun of you. Is there also a concern that that could negatively impact your employment? Absolutely. And we're seeing that now with the, with the military uh, aviation community acknowledging that this is, is a real safety risk all the way to the point of us actually shooting down uh, unknown objects uh, over the continental United States a couple of months ago for the first time in history. But even still, commercial airline pilots have no mechanisms to report this. If they see a UAP, uh, their only instruction, if they should like to report it, is to funnel that information to local law enforcement or some 
uh, UAP, UFO organizations uh, that are out in the public sector. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a formal process to look at this, and, and that's a domain awareness gap. This is going to be the third congressional hearing on UAPs. Are you sensing that there's more of a willingness among lawmakers to not only learn about what's happening, but, but potentially have some action, maybe even make it easier to report this? Well, I think so. I think we're seeing the start of that, if you will, UAP caucus start to form. The bottom line is once people take a look at the data, uh, it's hard to reach other conclusions. And so we've seen a lot of support from those that have had the opportunity to view what myself and other pilots and other military <laughs> folks have seen. And I think that uh, that support is going to continue to grow as this conversation expands post-hearing tomorrow. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently introduced bipartisan legislation which suggests the U.S. government or private contractors may secretly possess recovered UFOs and even biological evidence of living or deceased non-human intelligence. I know one of the witnesses tomorrow, who's a whistleblower, is, is expected to testify to that. Do you believe there could be some sort of a cover-up here on the part of the government? Well, that, that, that would be what uh, Mr. Grush is implying. And he did that research as part of the, uh, a member of the UAP task force that was put in place to investigate what we were seeing off the coast. Uh, and so, you know, I, I remain skeptical, I think, as mm -hmm. uh, many do uh, in, in the United States and elsewhere. But the fact of the matter is, with such claims, the only way we're going to be able to get to the bottom and, and believe those, I think, is with uh, further transparency from the government. By having Mr. Grush, myself, and Mr. Fravor go before Congress and being able to share our experiences, I think that is going to bring a lot of people into the conversation and put the onus on Congress mm -hmm. to be transparent about the topic. Ryan Graves, really good to have you with us this morning, and we'll be watching that testimony. Thank you. Thank you. Special Counsel Jack Smith zeroing in on a Trump meeting in the Oval Office. The details coming up. And an infant rescued from this car in the middle of sweltering triple-digit heat in Texas. And it was all caught on camera. Morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. It is 8 a.m. here on the East Coast. That Thanks happens for being fast, with actually. Me. This flows. Yeah, because you by. make it fly by. <laughs> you're such a joy to sit next to Erica Hill. This morning, we are keeping a close eye on the nation's capital. January 6th, grand jury. That grand jury will meet again today as a potential third indictment looms over Donald Trump. We're also learning about an Oval Office meeting that has become a key focus of the special counsel's probe. The Justice Department is now suing the governor of Texas after he refused to remove a floating border wall that the DOJ says is cruel to migrants. We're going to take you live to the Rio Grande as that legal battle escalates. And wait until you see this piece. Shoplifting has become so bad in San Francisco, stores are literally locking up frozen food, coffee, even mustard. <laughs> we'll have a live report from Mira Kyung-Law, who saw it happen in real time when she was there. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. This morning, the federal grand jury investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election will meet again. Anticipation is building as the former president faces another potential indictment. And we're now learning exclusive details about another Oval Office meeting that has become a focus of the special counsel. Sources tell CNN witnesses are being asked about a February 2020 meeting where Trump praised election security and improvements that his administration had made. But just weeks later, he started spreading conspiracy theories and casting doubt on the security of the 2020 election. You know, mail ballots, they cheat, okay? People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country. This election will be the most rigged election in history. The only way 
we're going to lose this election as if the election is rigged. Remember that. This is being done on purpose. They know it's no good. They know it's it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. Who's getting the ballots? Who's sending the ballots? Well, Trump's one-time ally and rival for the GOP presidential nomination, Chris Christie, joined Poppy Live just moments ago and weighed in on that reporting. I have no doubt in my mind, Poppy, um, that uh, in his heart, Donald Trump knows he lost to Joe Biden um, in November of 2020. Uh, but he has convinced himself by trying to convince others that the truth is otherwise. He never looked me in the eye and said to me, I know I lost, but he was very concerned beforehand about losing. Uh, and, and so it, it, it doesn't surprise me at all, the reporting that you gave overnight. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Hoding, CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers, and Bloomberg News Washington Bureau Chief Peggy Collins. Good to have all of you with us today. Let's just, let's just pick up on that. As Chris Christie was talking about, there's so much discussion right now as we're all waiting to see, mm -hmm. could there be an indictment? There's so much talk about intent and whether what we are learning new overnight shows any sort of intent. But there is also the very real conversation, Ellie, about how a person's mind can change. Yeah. I believed A... But today I believe B because I learned something. This is a great example of why it's so difficult to prove intent. Because you can argue it either way, right? If, you, if I'm a prosecutor, I'm arguing, look, he knew that this election was safe. He was told this election was safe. He embraced that. He celebrated it. Okay, that shows he knew that he ultimately lost. There was no fraud. Or you can argue, well, minds can change. Facts evolve. You get new facts. We want our policy leaders to adjust to the facts. Donald Trump will say, people were telling me this was stolen. Therefore, I believed it was stolen. And so this is a back and forth. But one thing that's really important to keep in mind, when it comes to a criminal courtroom, it's not a question of who has a better argument, more convincing argument. Prosecutors have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not easy. And that's why this case is not going to be a slam dunk. I don't think anything is a slam dunk, but this case is going to be tricky. I, I'm not sure I see the, the merits of, of going deep into this meeting. I, I don't think uh, this meeting alone... I mean, I, I'm not even sure how you get intent out of this meeting. I, my, that's my biggest problem. I think if you couple this with some overt act, we're not even sure. I mean, I, I'm, Jack Smith probably has something, but we're not sure what overt act mm -hmm. Donald Trump committed to uh, obstruct justice, to intimidate witnesses, to interfere with the process. We know what other individuals may have done, but the question is, can you get the guy at the top of the indictment? That is the question, and we have to see what those emails say from Mark Meadows. We have to see what Donald Trump actually overtly did in this process. And if you couple that with this, then maybe it becomes clearer. But that on its face, this meeting on its face, I'm not sure does it. Yeah. I also think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays with voters, because obviously we have several cases flying now around former President Donald Trump. But this is the one that really goes to the heart of democracy, mm -hmm. right, in terms of the integrity of the 2020 election, January 6th, and whether or not that really sits in voters' minds at a higher level and how they really take that across the campaign trail. Because we've really reported that already we know there's going to be legal proceedings right at the intersection mm -hmm. of the primaries and Donald Trump's cases. Sounds like there might be an impeachment inquiry, um, Ellie, against uh, President Biden. Just listening to what Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, told uh, Fox News last night. Here he was. Now you have found millions of foreign money, just what the 1023 alleges they did to Biden's family. Now we found that it has funneled through shell companies. If you're sitting in our position today, 
We would know none of this if Republicans had not taken the majority. We've only followed where the information has taken us. But Hannity, so this Speaker. is rising to the level of impeachment inquiry, which provides Congress the strongest power to get the rest of the knowledge and information needed. It's not a legal question. It's a right. political question. But what did you make hearing Kevin McCarthy? Well, this, this is the power of the majority. This is why elections matter. If you control Congress, you can open an impeachment inquiry. Speaking of there not being a smoking gun in any case, I've still not seen a smoking gun on this case. I think there are legitimate questions about where Hunter Biden was getting his money from. Clearly, he was only getting his money because his last name was Biden. But what's been missing is that definitive link to the president, to, the, to the, his father. And you know, I think it's an interesting political question, you both are the political experts, but how does that play to open an impeachment inquiry and potentially impeach this guy yeah, at I, this point? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I want to follow that same train of thought here. I, I'm not sure where Joe Biden falls in any of this. And I think most of America is like, what are we doing? Are you impeaching Hunter Biden? <laughs> I mean, this is that, that appears to be decently asinine. And I believe with, you can't out of one side of your mouth, right, make an economic argument saying inflation is high. Uh, unemployment or whatever are the argument, because Bidenomics actually, I, I believe, is working in, in a certain aspect of life. But you can't make that same argument and then spend the majority of your time on an impeachment inquiry where an election is on the line. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, it's it's called it's called Washington. Um, <laughs> but 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 in terms of in terms of why now, what would that look like timing? I think it is. If you look at this through that political lens, it could be very clear why this is continually at the top, at top of mind, and why perhaps this impeachment inquiry could happen at this moment. Well, I also think it goes back to the voters in terms of fatigue, right? And Chris Christie, in his interview with you, Poppy, really said he thinks he's the guy to actually get something done. But this is the question that people keep having time and time again in Washington. What are you actually doing to help us when it comes to prices, mm -hmm. when it comes to the economy? Or are, is all of this a lot of political theater? It remains to be seen. I, I but I mean, and what, theater, what theater are you going to watch? I mean, honestly, I mean, are you going to watch just you continue to dig into this rabbit hole after Hunter Biden? Or are you going to watch the trial in Miami, Miami, Florida, of the former president of the United States, or in Atlanta, Georgia, or in New York, or in Washington, D.C.? We don't know about Atlanta yet. Oh, Atlanta's coming. Oh, <laughs> just saying we don't know. Oh, Fanny, it's pretty obvious. First of all, Fanny's a bad woman, okay? I mean, she, she is an amazing prosecutor. All you have to do is ask Young Thug and many other rappers in the city of Atlanta right now. The Enrico indictments are just building, as we know, down there. So I, I just think having that type of political theater just on its face, far surpasses any impeachment inquiry just from the sexiness of it. Thank you, Ellie, Peggy, Okari. Appreciate it very much. Well, this morning, Texas is refusing to remove its border barriers in the Rio Grande, even as the federal government sues Governor Greg Abbott, vowing now to fight the Biden administration in court. We will litigate it initially in a federal district court in the state of Texas. Uh, if we lose there, we will be going to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and eventually all the way to the United States Supreme Court because Texas is defending its sovereignty and its constitutional right to secure the border of our state and our country. The Biden administration is asking a federal judge to force Texas to get rid of that floating barrier uh, put in there to deter migrants. The barrier itself is about a thousand feet long. The governor says there's a fence like device hanging from it to the bottom of the river. Well, the Justice Department here says this is not only dangerous, but also illegal. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in Eagle Pass, Texas, near the border this morning. The government's saying it's illegal, not because of immigration issues, uh, we should point out there. It's a different statute. Give us a sense this morning. What are you seeing? on the ground. 
Well, we actually just shot video, Erica, of migrants, and, and these are children and women who are walking along the concertina wire on the Rio Grande, again, to the point that all of this is happening. There's this giant legal battle, and it's not stopping illegal immigration. But let me show you the border barrier that's at the center of this legal battle. Because if you look, you have to look beyond two sets of concertina wire, and then you see the buoys in the middle of the river. Now, according to the US DOJ's lawsuit against the state of Texas, these buoys were deployed unlawfully. The state of Texas did not obtain permits before deploying these buoys. Now, this has caused, of course, an international incident because Mexico is concerned that these buoys could be um, on Mexican territory. They're investigating that. And of course, now this, there's this legal battle. Um, but if you take a look at, your, at our camera right now, you can see like these are women and children who um, um, have skirted all of these border barriers and what they're having to do is walk along this concertina wire and our understanding is that further south as they continue walking they will meet up with uh, law enforcement um, u.s border authorities that then take them for processing and about the humanitarian concerns that are raised because of all of these border barriers take a look at this video we were here on this property when a pregnant woman needed help and the property owner shared the story with us she says that this woman was on, was on the banks of the rio grande she needed help law enforcement had to cut through two sets of concertina wire and a fence to provide aid take a listen i cannot imagine anyone eight months pregnant, having to go through this, getting cut through the sea wire, feeling like you're being chased by the state, and then asking for help at a fence. And as you take another live look out here, you can see that migration is still happening. And Erica, that's one of the big points here. You see all these different border barriers you see these buoys the buoys have a beginning and an end i can see it from right here and that's the bigger point the 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 buoys that are at the middle of this legal battle the showdown between the state of texas and the u.s doj it's not even stopping illegal immigration migration is continuing we're seeing it it's the dangers that all of this poses to human yeah. beings the humanitarian point is what uh, the property owner where we're live at that's her concern mm -hmm. what she tells us is she doesn't want more people more migrants dying on her property because of all these barriers yeah and, and important to let that sink into the humanity um and the people involved here rosa excellent reporting as always really appreciate it so good to have you there more than 45 million people under heat alerts again in the United States this morning. Officials say 36 large wildfires are continuing to burn across 10 states. Multiple cities are seeing temps 10 to 15 degrees higher than the normal average, breaking daily records. Stephanie Elam joins us again this morning live from Las Vegas. Still incredibly hot, right? Still very hot. It's going to be hotter today than it was yesterday, Poppy. Here in Vegas, we are seeing for the rest of the week in Vegas and also in Phoenix that temperatures are going to be above 110 degrees. And we're just seeing these records just being shattered day after day. In Phoenix, uh, they're going on 26 days in a row of temperatures above 110. And even their overnight temperatures are setting records. They're at 15 days in a row with temperatures above 90 degrees. So there's not even a respite at night. 
people are still dealing with these temperatures that are super, super hot. Um, look at El Paso, which they're going on 40 days in a row where the temperatures have been above 100 degrees. In fact, I need to show you this video of what happened in South Texas during this uh, heat wave where this pa these parents accidentally locked their keys in the car along with their infant child. And you can see the father breaking out the windshield to get to the baby. Someone climbs in, gets the baby and hands the baby out. Uh, officials did show up later to check on that baby after they had already rescued the child and the baby is okay. No charges filed. It looked like it was just an accident. But keep in mind that day temperatures were at 101, tying the uh, record for that period. So just look at how hot that was and how dangerous that could be. This heat dome that we're seeing spreading into the Midwest, into the plains. Also, we're seeing Miami uh, also having heat index for 44 days above 100 degrees. All of this heat shifting into the plains. We're going to see basically most of the lower 48 states with temperatures that are above average for this time of the year and heading into uh, the northeast as well. You guys are going to see some record temperatures towards the end of the week. But what's really interesting here, we've got a new report coming out that's saying these temperatures that we're seeing in July would not be possible without the human-induced yeah. climate change. And so that tells you, again, we're going to have to do some work to save our planet and the climate here because this is becoming suffering. Some dramatic change needed right now. Stephanie Elam, thank you for being there. Death rates, overall death rates, were higher among Republicans than Democrats during the pandemic after vaccines became readily available. Those findings from a new study looking specifically at Ohio and Florida. So what does it all mean? Dr. Sanjay Gupta joining us with those details. And when 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in 1955, his murder became a catalyst for the civil rights movement. What President Biden is doing today to honor Till and what would have been his 82nd birthday. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Uh, there's a new study looking at political affiliation and how people fared during the pandemic in certain states. So the study found that after COVID-19 vaccines became readily available, Republicans were more likely to experience higher than expected death rates versus Democrats. Important to point out, these were overall deaths. These weren't COVID deaths. Uh, but really interesting here as you take a look at it. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And this was based on findings from two states, Ohio and Florida. So what can we glean from all of us joining us now? Who better to explain? CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good to see you this morning. So when we, when we look at this, again, this is about Florida and Ohio. Um, and this is looking at overall death rates after mm. the vaccine became readily available. What is the big takeaway? Well, the, the way that they sort of figured this out is they look at the observed number of people who died, and then they look at what was expected in terms of number of deaths. That's what excess mortality really means. We, we, we can figure out those numbers. And then what these authors did, they went back and looked at voter registration files and said, is there a correlation here between these observed number of deaths and overall voter registration files? And what was interesting is that up until April of 2021, so the first year or so of the pandemic, there was not a significant difference between Republicans and Democrats. But then, as you say, starting in May of 2021, remember vaccines came out at the beginning of 2021, you, that's when you saw the significant difference, about a 43 percent 
increased uh, death rate among uh, Republicans versus Democrats in terms of excess deaths. Now, one thing I'll say is you got to be careful a little bit with studies like this because that's a that's a simplification. There could be other factors, age, for example, pre-existing conditions, where you live, socioeconomic status. But overall, in terms of this one factor they were looking at, Republicans versus Democrats, they found that it was significantly different. Again, after the vaccines had come out, starting in the spring of 2021. Age is something I thought a lot about when I was reading this study. They did, it wasn't controlled for age to make it apples to apples. Was this just due to vaccination status? We don't know. Yeah, I think that for the point you just made, it, we, we don't know for sure, but we can say vaccination status plays a big role. Uh, let me show you something. This is some of the reporting we were doing around that time. When you look overall just at hospitalizations, um, unvaccinated versus fully vaccinated. And I think this, this tells a story. This is for people over the age of 18, January through November of 2021. Significant difference, obviously, between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. But again, to your point, Poppy, it, there, there are other factors. Um, the, the, the greatest disparity you saw, the greatest differences you saw was really in people over the age of 75. So what does that mean? Are there more people who are Republicans over that age? Are there you know, fewer Democrats? We don't know. So you can only take this sort of data for what's presented here. There could be other confounding factors, but I think it's safe to say vaccinations played a huge role here. When we look at where we stand now in 2023, heading into the fall, where do we stand with COVID? Where do we stand with, with even vaccine status? Okay, so if you look again at this, this excess mortality issue and say, okay, how far above or below are we with regard to projected or expected number of deaths? We, the country expects a certain number of deaths every month, every year. Where are we with respect to that? I can show you. We calculated this as well. Uh, in this graphic, the orange line is sort of the expected number of deaths. And the blue is what we're seeing. So that's, that's a good picture in the sense that the observed number of deaths is below or right at the expected number of deaths. You've had a couple of surges, as you see there earlier in the graph, but that's, that's where we stand now. Going into the fall, it's, it's a little bit of a still open question. You've got new variants. Some of those variants are, are uh, escaping existing immunity, which is why there have been boosters that have been recommended. I think overall, if you look at the country, I think about 17% of the country has had the updated uh, boosters. And it, you know, there's been discussion about future shots and only about 33% of the country says that they're actually interested in getting some of these, uh, these uh, shots on a regular basis. So 32%. So you know, that, that's where we stand. I will say that if, if you look at some of these projections, more than 90% of the country probably now has been exposed to COVID. So there is a fair amount of infection acquired immunity out there as well on top of the vaccine acquired immunity. The problem with both of those though is that they seem to have limited efficacy in terms of time. They don't, they don't last forever. They may last for months in terms of pre preventing against uh, you know, getting sick or requiring hospitalization. So you need to have updated immunity. This is so interesting, yeah. Sanjay. Always good to see you. Thank you. Thanks. You too. Got it. Well, on what would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday today, President Biden will designate a national monument honoring the black teenager whose lynching served as a catalyst for the civil rights movement. In 1955, Emmett Till was 14. He was from Chicago. He was visiting family in Mississippi when he was abducted, tortured, and shot to death after a white woman accused him of allegedly whistling at her. She later admitted to lying about it. Our Sarah Snyder spoke, to, Seidner, I should say, spoke to Emmett Till's cousin, Deborah Watts, about Biden's plan to honor him. 
we know that it's time that we even have a seat at the table, that our family has a seat at the table so that the erasure, the reimagining of the truth uh, is not retold in a way that it removes the dignity, the sacrifice, and uh, the horrific nature of what happened there because we don't want that repeated. She went on to call her aunt, Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, a shero. Till Mobley will also be memorialized for courageously bringing the world's attention to her son's murder. She insisted on an open casket funeral so the world could bear witness to her son's gruesomely mutilated body. Other memorials in Mississippi telling Till's story have been vandalized, some of them even shot at. The new monument will consist of three protected sites. The first is going to be unveiled at the Chicago church where Till's funeral was held. Another will be at the courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi, where that all-white jury acquitted Till's murder after just an hour of deliberation. The third site will be Grable Landing, which is believed to be where Till's body was pulled in the Tallahatchie River. A very meaningful day. Yeah, so important. So just ahead, can social media companies be held liable for their effects on the mental health of children. A lawyer representing some 40 school districts is now suing big tech companies. They say yes. Also, Cal Dobbs just became the first transgender person to complete a coast-to-coast run all the way from California to Florida. What inspired his journey ahead? Welcome back. A wave of new legal action against social media companies in the midst of what the U.S. Surgeon General has called a youth mental health crisis in this country. Too often kids on social media are exposed to extreme, inappropriate, and harmful content. Uh, indeed, nearly half of adolescents are saying that social media now makes them feel worse about their bodies. A Surgeon General report warns teenagers are spending an average of three and a half hours on social media every day. Every day. And he says it's resulting in depression, anxiety, poor sleep, eating disorders, and cyberbullying. Last week, the American Federation of Teachers, the nation's second largest teachers union, issued a report calling on social media organizations to rein it in, citing the dramatic disruption in the teaching and learning ecosystems of our nation's schools. Well, now hundreds of school districts across the country are actually suing the parent companies of Instagram, Facebook, TikTok and Snapchat. Why? Joining us now is attorney Mark J. Byrne, who is representing 40 school districts, including the Aspen School District, and their lawsuit against big tech companies. Also CNN senior media analyst Sarah Fisher with us as well. Um, so, Mark, when it comes to where we begin here regarding social media use among kids, you've said that, quote, there is no uh, we have an epidemic that is no different than opioids. Can you explain to us what you mean by that? Absolutely. The major social media companies have written their algorithms to intentionally addict children, school-age children, to their algorithms. This is no different than drug companies that sold opioids and claimed that they were not addictive. Certainly, the social media companies are doing the exact same thing. It's a really interesting argument. I think one of the differences, Sarah, is uh, the lawsuits against the opioid companies, Purdue Pharma and others, uh, they could point to they could point to deaths. Here, you're not pointing largely to deaths. And I, I wonder what you think, given all of the 
litigation so far against these big social media companies, even up to the Supreme Court on separate Section 230 matters, just hasn't really proved successful. Yeah, that's in part because, to your point, Poppy, Section 230 is a law that shields these big tech platforms from being sued or held accountable for some of the third-party content on their sites. However, it doesn't mean that these platforms shouldn't be held accountable for using their resources more responsibly. Mm. And I think that points to what we're seeing with this lawsuit. You know, Instagram has rolled out a bunch of tools to combat bullying. Snapchat has taken the fentanyl crisis really seriously, rolled out tools to prevent some of the messaging that causes that. YouTube is trying to change its content content moderation algorithms to stop radicalization. But all in all, I think what mental health experts are warning, including all the way up to the Surgeon General, is that this is just not working, that mm-hmm. teens are not experiencing the same level of joy and optimism that social platforms thought could bring them when they first rolled out. I do want to read what Meta, which is the parent company of, of Facebook and Instagram and now Threads, mm-hmm. says reports from the CDC and others point to growing academic pressure, concerns of safety in schools, lingering impact of the pandemic and limited access to mental health care as key factors. We want to work with the schools and academic experts to better understand these issues and how social media companies can provide teens with support they need. Mark, what do you say to that? I mean, you're suing them. Well, I, clearly they have a uh, desire to defend their actions, and that is not going to work with respect to what they have said. This is, this is an epidemic with respect to our school-age children. Children, as we heard a few moments ago, are spending over three hours a day on social media. You have various platforms such as um, Snapchat, where children can find out exactly what their peers are doing virtually at any moment, and if they're left out. So we see this cyberbullying, the uh, children becoming very uh, adept Mm -hmm. at watching other kids, but it's affecting them on a moment-to-moment basis, and it is something that the uh, large social media platforms can certainly control to at least a degree. When the internet first came out uh, 10 years ago or so, or a little more, there were about 300,000 users. Today there are 4 billion users in the internet. This is something that must be controlled or our school-age children are going to continue to suffer and suffer dramatically. So, Mark, really quickly before I let you go, one thing that stood out to me is that you're doing this on behalf of these school districts, Mm -hmm. right, who are saying we are having to deal with this. Why do you believe that this is going to be a more effective lawsuit going against these companies coming at it from that angle as opposed to from a parent who says, I can't control this with my kid. I don't know how to break through this algorithm. Or from a child who says the same thing. Why is it the school district? There, there are certainly, there are lawsuits involving parents and children. But we believe that the uh, school districts whose budgets are continually being stressed and now have to put out much, much more money just to combat the social, uh, the, the mental illness caused by social 
by the social media companies, and we believe that the school districts are entitled to get that money back. Mm -hmm. And so, just as in opioids, it's an abatement cause of action, where we're trying to get the additional money back for mm -hmm. them. In a small district like Aspen, they have had to put on three new full-time healthcare professionals, which is going to further stress the budget. All the schools in this country need more money, and they do not need more money. They do not need to be spending more money every day on these types of problems, but they certainly are. Sarah, the insurance companies were successful in taking on big tobacco in the 90s because they said you marketed to kids and you knew it. And those that went after the opioid creators and distributors were successful because they said doctors, you knew it was addictive and companies, you knew it was addictive and you did it anyway. Could that same logic work if this is taken all the way up to the higher courts against social media companies? You knew about addictiveness. We know it's harmful because of X and therefore you're liable. It could if there's proof that they knew about it and they didn't do anything to stop it. The challenge, Poppy, and this is where I think some of these lawsuits are going to run into a little bit of a road bump, is that these tech platforms are doing so much right now, and it might be for genuine reasons or it might be for PR reasons to shield them against lawsuits, but they're doing so much to address these concerns, building wellness centers. You know, there's check-ins for different kids. A lot of them are even building separate products just for kids to try to address this. You know, Facebook has Messenger for kids. YouTube has YouTube kids. And so I think the hard thing about the defense is that with the tobacco, companies, they didn't have much that they could point to to say they were doing. Social media companies now for the past five years have been trying to tackle this problem. Really interesting. Uh, it is fascinating and certainly not the last time we'll be talking about it. Sarah Fisher, Mark J. Byrne, good to have you both here this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Stores in San Francisco are locking up all kinds of Everything. things, not just baby formula. Look at this coffee, ground coffee, frozen food, all of this in response to a spike in shoplifting. And wow, what our cameras captured while they were rolling in the store for this story. Did that guy pay? Did that guy pay? He didn't pay. New this morning, retailers in San Francisco are installing unprecedented security measures, all there to protect against what's being called rampant shoplifting in the city in recent months. Exit gates, chain locks, as you see right there, key locks, as you're seeing in this image, all to prevent thieves from walking out the door with their merchandise, even mustard. CNN's Kyung La joining us now live this morning with more on this story. It is, I am floored by what you found, Kyung. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to imagine barbecue sauce behind plexiglass. And these are measures, Erica, that if you live in a big city, you're not unused to seeing where you have to call the attendant to open up the plexiglass. But these chains and locks are fairly unprecedented. And we're talking about neighborhoods where there are multi-million dollars homes lining the streets. And so we wanted to figure out why. Richie Greenberg walked into a San Francisco Walgreens when he saw in the frozen food section this. Chains, heavy chains that went from padlock to padlock on both sides of the doors. And this was bizarre, something I'd never seen before. This is just more icing on the cake telling us that rampant crime is, is 
has become a, a regular part of life. So typical that in the 30 minutes we were at this Walgreens, we watched three people, including this man, steal. Did that guy pay? Did that guy pay? He didn't pay. Walgreens says this Richmond neighborhood store with aisles of products like mustard locked behind plexiglass has the highest theft rate of all their nearly 9,000 U.S. stores, hit more than a dozen times a day. When thieves turned to cleaning out ice cream and frozen burritos, workers grew so frustrated they resorted to the chains. They were ordered down by corporate because of the negative messaging. But Walgreens isn't the only retailer impacted in San Francisco. You have to ask an employee for help. At this store, frozen food is controlled with a cable lock, fake eyelashes locked behind plexiglass, along with lotion and nail polish. At another grocery store, $14 bags of coffee under lock and key. What is this? Um, I don't know. I don't understand why coffee. Oh, no, here she is. But oh. <laughs> it's become kind of like a police state in San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It's not part of city life. It's not part of the way people should be living, right? And that includes folks who are committing the crimes. Marjan Philauer, mom of three, small business and community advocate, says these visible problems in her city are leading to renewed activism driven by residents, like the recall of the city's district attorney last year. I think what we've seen, uh, especially in the past couple of years, is less tolerance, more exasperation, and more movement to action by everyday San Franciscans to change how their city is run. It's not enough right now, but there is a change, and I think ultimately we will get there. San Francisco City Supervisor Matt Dorsey, former police spokesman and recovering drug addict, sees the rampant shoplifting as a systemic problem, from city leaders to an understaffed police force to the fentanyl crisis. When you're seeing that level of retail theft, that tends to be subsistence level retail theft. People, people are, who are hungry. People are hungry. There is a level of addiction playing out in many parts of our city. It's happening at levels we really haven't seen in San Francisco. What I'm hearing from my residents and what I'm hearing from San Franciscans is it's time for tough love. We are not doing any addict in this city favors by enabling behavior that is potentially deadly in ways we have never seen. In a statement, Walgreens talked to CNN and said that it is focused on preventative measures, safety, but that retail crime remains one of the company's top challenges, especially in San Francisco. But here, here's something to keep in mind, Poppy and Erica, that the crime rates for property crime and violent crime at the end of 2022 were actually lower than it was before the pandemic. The challenge for the city here is that this sort of crime, this widespread sense of retail theft, is something that is so widely felt. Poppy, yeah, yeah. Erica? Widely felt an interesting point, too, um, in your piece about a lot of this being about subsistence, right? So it's food and it's those kind of necessities. Kyung, uh, great reporting. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. So... Did the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer save movie theaters? Not exactly. <laughs> Harry Anton is here with the numbers. All you needed was one weekend. Just, that. Just one weekend. It's fine. What, what is your... We come to this place Down. for magic. 
We come oh, to AMC. You movies. remember that. If you've been to an AMC movie theater, you've likely seen Nicole Kidman's enchanting invitation aimed at drawing moviegoers back into theaters after they were shuttered during the pandemic. But it turns out nothing was able to do that like, you guessed it, Barbenheimer. CNN senior data <laughs> reporter Harry Anton here with this morning's number. Good morning. Good morning. Big weekend. Huge weekend. Huge weekend. All right. This morning's number is one. It's Barbenheimer in the domestic box office marked the first time ever two films debuted with at least $80 million in box office the same weekend. So it was a huge weekend. A lot of folks saw Barb Barbie. A few, slightly fewer folks saw Oppenheimer, but the fact is both films did tremendously in the box so office. So that's great. So you say this is the first time that this has actually happened. Yes. Which is a big deal. Yes. Is one weekend enough to change the fate of movie theaters everywhere, Harry? <laughs> well, I would say probably not necessarily, you know, if we're looking at the 2023 domestic box office to date, what we see is, yes, we are up year over year, 16% in the domestic box office, but we are still well south of 2019, right, where we're down 19%. So no, we haven't made it back. But I wanted to take us down a little bit towards memory lane and give you an understanding, you know, this idea of a twin bill, past twin bills. This isn't the first time two great movies debuted in the same year. Look, in 1980, The Empire Strikes Back and The Shining debuted. 1984, Ghostbusters and Gremlins. And 2008, The Dark Knight and Mamma Mia, which strikes me quite similarly sort of the Barbie. They really go well together. And, yes. <laughs> You can find anything you like want. Like Barbie and Oppenheimer. That's exactly right. Any of these your favorite? You, I can't even Out of tell all you, these pairings? I, how many of these movies have you seen? Uh, almost all of them. I haven't seen The Dark Knight. I have seen... Oh, no, not The Shining. I don't do scary two. movies. Yeah. No. Only Never. Ghostbusters and Mamma Mia. I'm terrible. Well, we have, a, we have a lot of things to catch up on you. We I mean, we've lot. got a long list, Harry. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just ahead here, uh, a really inspiring story. Cal Dobbs just ran nearly 3,000 miles across the country from California to Florida. He's the first reported transgender person to do it. So why did he decide to make this trek he's been dreaming of since the age of 10? He'll tell us. A triumphant finish for Cal Dobbs, the first transgender person to complete a coast-to-coast -coast run. 2,800 miles over the span of four months. Cal was running to raise money to fight the hundreds of anti-trans bills that have been introduced in state legislatures. And we spoke with him about this incredible accomplishment. I was really struck, you know, something that you said in a statement, you said, I ran across America because I love to run. I also happen to be transgender. Those things are not related, but my humanity, passions, and personhood have been politicized by far-right extremists. You went on to say athletics our primary target. What has that been That's like? Right. What has that been like for you? I feel like we, we talk about this a lot, but I don't know that we often hear as much as we should from people who are directly impacted by these attacks. That's right. I so appreciate this question. We know that trans people in sports is sort of the hot topic and a lot of the anti-trans rhetoric centers around the buzzword of like science and biology. But the science proves that transgender people, specifically trans women, who are what a lot of this legislation targets, have no demonstrated biological advantage in sports. Something I love to say is, um, you know, people are like Trans women are dominating sports. And I say, can you name three trans women dominating sports right now? 
the politicization of transgender identities is something new. We are sort of the new political scapegoat. I myself am a transgender athlete. I think that playing sports, running, having fun, that is something that all people should be able to enjoy. I think there's something deeply American about mm-hmm. sports, as we know. Um, and, and yeah. Well, and, and sports can be a way truly to bring people together, as we've seen over generations. Um, I know you were really hopeful, too, that with this run, that you would be meeting people along the way with whom you could have conversations Did you have those moments? Absolutely. And what I found running across some of the states with the most hostile political uh, views on trans people is that policies do not reflect people. I think that the majority of people are relatively ignorant about transgender identities, and that is human. None of us were raised with the... Um, with the tools to be able to articulate these things. Myself, mm-hmm. I came out as trans in my early 20s and I had never met a transgender person that I was aware of. I didn't have the language to describe my identity. So we're all sort of learning together on this, you know, and I think there's sort of a societal reconciliation with some antiquated beliefs about gender that hurt all of us. And I find that most people are very ready to have those conversations. Most people are excited to learn and meet people who are different from them. And as an educator myself, ignorance is simply an opportunity to educate. And I find that very galvanizing. I think you make such a great point um, that when we actually talk to people, Uh, it is amazing what those conversations can be, what they can lead to, and what they can reveal. Cal Dobbs, congratulations on a very impressive feat. Uh, Feat, I didn't even mean to do that, but there you go. I did it on that run. (laughs) Uh, I know you have a, a, a lot of important work ahead of you as well. Thank you. Thank you. 2,800 miles, no small No small feat. Congratulations to Cal. (laughs) And thank you for starting your morning with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.